0: I'm Jeff Cohen. Lisa Aiken has been a clinical psychologist working with individuals and couples for nearly 40 years in New York City and Jerusalem. She's also an Israeli tour guide, a sought after speaker on Jewish topics who has spoken in more than 200 cities worldwide and the author of 13 books, including the Balthshuva Survival Guide. There's a lot to talk about today, so let's get started. Lisa, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you, Jeff. So there's so many different things I just mentioned in the intro, and I'm sure we'll get to all of them as we talk. But let's start at the beginning. Can you give me a sense of what you know about your own ancestry in terms of your parents, grandparents, great-grandparents?
1: My mother's parents came from Russia at some point in the 1880s. They settled in St. Joseph, Missouri. They were observant Jews. But it wasn't possible for my great-grandfather to earn a living, so he worked on Shabbos. Um, But besides that, they were quite observant. Eventually, they moved to Medford, Massachusetts, or Medford, as they say in Massachusetts. And um, I know that my grandfather and his brother and four sisters were abused a lot by the local Christians. They were harassed. They were stoned. They were, you know, a lot of nasty things happened. And as a result, none of them wanted to stay Orthodox. So they had those very bad experiences. So my mother grew up in a home that was kosher and somewhat traditional, but um, that was the extent of it. She did have some Jewish education. I think she went to Hebrew school for a few years. And um, her mother's side of the family came from Vienna. And my mother's grandmother used to go down to the port in Baltimore and pick up refugees from Europe and bring them to her house and give them meals until they found places to stay. So she was kind of like the way house for people that came to America from Europe. She must have been a very orthodox woman, and I'm sure her house was kosher. I don't know what happened with the kids, but they didn't stay observant either. Mm -hmm. And then on my grandfather's side, on my father's side, he came over from Vilna, His wife came over from Latvia when they were both children. They met in America, and that was in the early 1900s. Knowing what I know now about history, I assume that both sets of these great grandparents and great-grandparents came as a result of pogroms. And um, they settled in Baltimore also and um, stopped being any observance. So I know that for Pesach, they did keep some semblance of a kosher home. They did have a Seder. They went to Shulan Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And my grandfather gave money to B'nai B'rith. And that was about it. So my father grew up in a home that was not very religious. And um, he had just a very small amount of Hebrew school education. And when my parents got married, my father hated Orthodox Jews. I think my mother didn't care one way or the other, but he really didn't like them. And when his mother passed away in her 50s, he wanted to say Kaddish for her because he knew that's something that Jews do. It's just one problem. If you want to say Kaddish, there were no non-orthodox shuls that he could go to to do that. So as divine providence would have it, he found a specific shul to go to, and the rabbi there was an intellectual, and he would give a class either before or after the services, And my father was very drawn to these classes, so much so that after three months, he came to my mother and he said to her, I want to keep a kosher home. So uh, my mother was really uh, shocked. You know, she didn't know what this rabbi had done to her husband. And what ended up happening in time was the Rebetzin uh, set my mother down and taught her how to change all of her non-kosher recipes to kosher. And my parents became um, much more traditional as a result of my father's having this experience when he was saying Kaddish. So in due time, they sent my older brother and sister to religious Jewish schools. Eventually they put us all into a conservative day school where there were only two observant teachers. And I got one of them in fourth grade. And she said, the reason we are Jewish is to keep the Torah. So I went to my mother and I said, I want to keep Shabbos. What am I supposed to do? Because they didn't teach us any halacha, really, in the school. So she gave me a few things that we don't do on Shabbos, and that's all I knew of Shabbos.
0: So let me just ask you a question. You mentioned your your father having an issue or not liking Orthodox Jews. So what was behind that feeling?
1: He felt they were all mindless sheep following mindless leaders and that there was no rhyme or reason to any of the rituals that they observed. Clearly, there was nobody in his life that had any understanding, if they were doing any rituals, of why they were doing rituals or being able to explain it to him in a way that made any sense. So I remember there was a specific synagogue that was very well known in Baltimore. And my parents told me that the people there were so religious that you couldn't be a member unless you kept Shabbos. And we couldn't even imagine such a thing. It was like so off the wall that that you had a synagogue where people had to keep Shabbos. So, you know, they, they really didn't see a thread of reason in all the different things that these people were doing.
0: So they just came across the right rabbi who explained it in a way that just changed his whole viewpoint on something that he had one viewpoint on. And then it just changed by the way that this one person happened to explain the religion to him.
1: Yes, and I have to say that that rabbi has the merit of having so many people in my family who ultimately became observant Jews as a result of his influence on my father.
0: What were some of the things you were doing? What was it like for you in school during that time of your life?
1: So basically, school was a place where we had some very good secular teachers, and I was very good in sports. And we had a few hours a day of some kind of Jewish education. Part of it was learning to read Hebrew and the prayers, Part of it was learning about the, I'd say, more of the cultural parts of the Jewish holidays. Part of it was learning how to read Chumash. And, um, you know, there was like hardly anybody in the school was religious, not the kids, and not the teachers. So my experience of school was just probably what a normal kid in a co-ed school was having, except I was very athletic and I loved to play sports
0: but then something about that NCSY experience changed your approach to Judaism?
1: Well, there was the first step, which was what happened to me in fourth grade, where I was observing shops in a very bizarre way. I mean, just to give you an idea. So my father was saying Kaddish for his father that year, and the synagogue we went to was about a 20-minute drive away. So my mother had told me that I couldn't drive a car. But what she really meant was I shouldn't ride in a car, but that's not what she said. So I was nine. Mm -hmm. I wasn't going to drive a car. So I'd wait for my father to open the car door, which would turn on the car light. I would open up my side of the car, get in before he closed his side so I didn't turn off the light, get driven to Shul, be there for however long Shul took, which seemed interminable, come back, and he would drive me to my creative arts workshop, which was from 12 to 4 on Saturdays, where I wouldn't sign in because I knew I wasn't allowed to do that. And I didn't bring money with me to buy soda like everybody else because I knew that I wasn't allowed to use money on Shabbos. And I couldn't pick up the phone when the day was over because I knew I couldn't telephone. So my parents would just kind of figure out more or less what time to come and pick me up in the car and drive me home. So that's what Shabbos looked like for that year. And as um, a year later, the shul actually moved two blocks away from our house, so it's easy to walk to shul. But we had no idea of what Oneg Shabbos was. We didn't know that people washed before they ate challah on Shabbos. We never had bread on Friday nights or Shabbat day. My mother would always make very nice food, cooking on Shabbos, and we'd have a special meal. My father would work into Shabbos. Whenever he finished work on Friday night, he would come home and make kiddish. Um, We didn't know about making Kiddush at all on Shabbat day. And, um, you know, we didn't know about zemirot. We didn't know about anything positive about Shabbos. It was just a bunch of things that you can't do. So it took a long time, really, until I got to NCSY six years later, later, for me to see that Shabbos could actually be enjoyable. I was doing it because (laughs) I thought I was supposed to, but it was really tedious, especially in the summer. So, like, how do you fill all those hours after shul, on Shabbos, when it's seven, eight hours, so Shabbos is over. So we had a very large backyard and typically we'd play, we'd play baseball in our backyard and you know the neighborhood kids would come over and we'd play sports. I mean, what else was there to do on Shabbos if you can't do everything else? So that was uh, that's how I lived for a number of years.
0: It's also interesting when you learn these rules, but you don't have the full context of them. So you're hearing, don't drive, don't write, but you're not learning about the spirit of the day and that's why probably the joy was missing from it of understanding what it was really all about, aside from just this list of things you can't do.
1: Well, not only that, Jeff, but you know, for somebody who grows up religious, it's a given that you live in a religious community and other people are doing the same things that you're doing. There was nobody, I, I lived in a neighborhood of 600 Jewish families, and besides the rabbi and the cantor who lived a few blocks away and were at that synagogue that I mentioned, and the rabbi's son, and his family, there is only one other observant family in the neighborhood. So I never saw what anybody else was doing and it was never a communal experience. So it, it enabled us to be very bizarre for a long time without having any idea of what it looked like elsewhere. And I also have to add, my parents were not observant. My parents were not keeping Shabbos all those years. I started, and then eventually my brothers and my sister also became Shomer Shavis in more or less the same way that I was. But, I mean, we never had parents that were part of the same team doing this with us.
0: Well, that probably also explains why part of the equation was never moving to an Orthodox community. It wasn't a priority for your parents because they didn't put value in surrounding your family with other families that were doing the same thing because it's not what they were personally doing.
1: right. They were very happy to live in our neighborhood it was all jewish it was a very nice suburban neighborhood Um, we had you know very good schools nearby the synagogue was very convenient so like what was missing for them It, it was fine
0: and so you referenced ncsy a couple of times and how that gave you like a different view on shabbos and living an observant life so what did you gain through that experience
1: so when i got into ncsy for the first time in my life i was a with other kids who were also keeping shabbos B, there is just such a feeling of joy on Shabbos. I never knew that that was even a possibility. C, there were these amazing rabbis who were nothing like the teachers I had had. These rabbis were so excited about Judaism. They were so excited about teaching why it was good to be Jewish. They were so excited about teaching you know, how we observe Shabbos and what the rationales were and what the, the essence was of what it meant to be a Jew at least to, to a very large degree. And the rabbis were very cool. Um, if I would say this in certain circles today, they would make believe it never happened, but the rabbis played baseball with us, you know, and they let me play. I was a girl and, you know, there are another few girls who were really good athletes on the team and the rabbis played with us. So, you know, it was a kind of situation where things were very normal. But also Judaism and spirituality and excitement with being a Jew was part and parcel of everything that we did for that week. The NCSY camp, by the way, was just for a week. It wasn't a long period of time. And when the week was over, I just felt I just wanted more. I wanted more. So we had a few Shabbatones in the course of the year, and each one was like such a high for me. There was singing and there was dancing and there was Ruach and there were other kids who were knowledgeable about being a Jew and excited about being Jewish and I never experienced any of that. So it was just constant excitement every time I went to an NCSY event that there were people there that were so enthusiastic and so knowledgeable.
0: So this is probably also happening at a time in your life when you're starting to think about college and what you might want to do for a living. So how are you reconciling like the spark you're feeling for Judaism? versus what you maybe want to do for your career and the kind of school you'd have to go to and what the religious environment might be like there, wherever you end up.
1: Honestly, Jeff, that never crossed my mind. It happened that I spent what turned out to be my first year in college at Tel Aviv University, because my family had moved to Tel Aviv for that year. And Tel Aviv University was an extremely anti religious place. And it was I I couldn't reconcile being in Israel in such an anti religious place. But (laughs) That year, all I did was um, liberal arts to get them out of the way. And when I came back to America, I was going to a state school, and I had no idea what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And the funny thing is, I had gone to a summer camp when I was 12. And, um, you know, it's interesting how God has such a sense of humor. So the first or second day of camp, the head counselor said, "Okay, everybody go into the barn and get yourself a sitter. And there is a long line of girls on one side. On the right side, there is nobody. I saw the sitters were there, but nobody was standing and waiting for them. So I said, I'm not a fool. I'm going to go take the sitter from the place. There's no line. So I go over, I take the sitter. Little did I know that on the left side were all the Ashkenazic sitters. And on the right (laughs) side were the Sephardic sitters. And I was Ashkenaz as they come. But um, it turned out that when I was in college, I was davening one day from that sitter And I was asking God for clarity about, like, what major should I have? And in the Sephardic Siddur, when you say, These are the things that a person gets the interest from in this world, but the capital remains to get in the world to come. One of the things that's mentioned in both the Ashkenaz and Sephardic Siddur is bringing peace between people. But in the Sephardic Sitter alone, it says, and bringing peace between a husband and wife. And the word just jumped off the page at me that day. And I said, that's it. I'm going to become a psychologist who's going to help people have peace with other people and to have do couples therapy to bring peace between a husband and wife. And that's when I decided I wanted to become a psychologist. It never occurred to me in a million years that there would be any conflicts between Judaism and being a psychologist, and boy, was that an eye-opener, nor that a a place that I would go to for university would have any conflicts with Judaism. And um, I ended up going to Loyola University of Chicago, which is a Jesuit school. And and in Loyola, ironically, I I didn't have conflicts within the classes themselves. The conflicts only began when I went into my internship and my, my clerkship and my internship, with uh, supervisors who were either lapsed Christians or reformed Jews. And they really gave me a very hard time. But until then, there were no issues. In fact, when I was in graduate school, everybody had to take these exams called qualifying exams. They took them on Friday and Shabbos. And because someone had uh, paved the way for me a few years earlier, they made an exception for me to take it on Friday and Sunday. And um, I didn't experience conflicts in my Jewish observance. What I did find for the first time in my life was that some of my classmates were very anti-Semitic, though.
0: So I want to ask a few follow-up questions from some of the information you just gave. The first thing, this idea that you went to Tel Aviv for a year, to me, that kind of like came out of left field. Because the way you described your parents, I wouldn't have expected you to suddenly say, oh, and then we went to Israel for a year. Like, why would that be a priority for a family that's not you know, looking to explore Judaism on that level. So what made that move happen? And then kind of as a follow-up to that, your parents must've seen this sort of exploding interest in Judaism you were having from the NCSY experiences. So why was there no effort during that time in Israel to say, let's expose her to some of the things that she's showing interest in?
1: Excellent question. So what I didn't say was that after my brother and sister and I went to our first NCSY camp, My brother and I came home. We didn't say a word to each other, but we both made life miserable for my parents to keep breaking Shabbos. And I must say, when I wrote my Valteshuva survival guide, there was no such thing in my day. And if I had had a guide like I wrote, I would have done things very differently. But the end result was that within a year, my parents became Shomer Shabbos. And uh, it was a whole different experience to be in a home where my parents and we were Singing Zmiru together, we were teaching my parents, you know, there was no phone ringing on Shabbos, there is no my father coming home from work at, you know, who knows when, eight o'clock at night on a Friday night when we'd already eaten dinner and and making kiddush, you know, after he came home. It was uh, really quite wonderful that way. And what was happening is because my sister was three years older than me and I was at the end of high school. My father was getting very concerned that as the kids were going to college, we would be exposed to non-Jews and might intermarry. So he and my mother decided to do a pilot trip to Israel to try to prevent us from going to colleges where we might end up falling in love with non-Jews and not staying Jewish. So I think that NCSY had a strong effect on them and directly through us and through most of my teen years, even before they became Shomer Shabbos. I think my father really did want to have more of a connection of his kids in a milieu that would keep them Jewish.
0: Yeah, but then you go to Israel with this idea of like, let's not have them end up at schools where they might be exposed to a non-Jew and ultimately marry a non-Jew. But then the college you described you went to, it sounds like their nightmare actually happened. You went to a place where you're surrounded with a lot of non-Jews.
1: So there was college and then there was graduate school. And um, Mm -hmm. at Tel Aviv University, there were very, very few observant Jews, at least in the overseas program where we were. And um, I was exposed to a lot of people who had been religious at one time and threw it away, either because they went into the army or because they went to Yeshiva in New York and they just left it behind. And I found that very disturbing. I I just saw a certain viewpoint about Orthodox Judaism that was incompatible with my believing in God and Torah and I became an agnostic that year and I had to work out for myself for the next nine months if I actually believed in God and if I did if I believed in Torah. It was a quite disturbing year for me in that sense but um, my parents when they went to Israel you know they figured if you're in Israel everybody's Jewish you're not going to marry a non-Jew. They hadn't developed in the way that it took them many years to develop about what being a Torah observant Jew really involves above and beyond just, you know, keeping Shabbos.
0: So then at the time that you get through college and grad school and you know you want to get into psychology, at this point, are you like fully all in on being observant? Are you now like looking to date only people that are also observant or come from that background? Or where are you from that perspective?
1: When I got into NCSY, we heard about something called SNEUT. You know, or in America it's And I was like, oh, no, like this does not fit into being a high school student in a public school. I went to public high school after seventh grade. And, um, you know, it was like a game, cha- a game killer to even think about wearing skirts down to your knees or sleeves down to your elbow. And um, it was what I called social suicide. So as much as I would hear about those ideas in NCSY and they sounded very nice and very lofty, the practicality of it was just not on my radar screen. I decided when we went to Israel that I would leave all of my unsneistic clothes home, you know, all of my immodest clothes home, all my pants and all my, you know, short skirts and whatever and my sleeveless. And I went to Israel, I think, with two shirts and one dress, something like that, because that's what it was in America in those days. So, um, you know, when I, when I got to college, the idea of socializing with people in my classes, it never even started. Uh, one of the reasons was because they were so different from me. It, it just wasn't something I was looking forward to. And the other reason was because Shabbos and uh, because, uh, the Jewish holidays came out after I finished Tel Aviv University. In my first year, they came out on Tuesday, Wednesday, Yom Kippur came out on Thursday. I was just hanging on by my fingernails to keep up with my classes, missing all these classes. It was just something that I was like full in with my classes and with my homework and didn't have time to socialize so much. As far as who I dated went, yes, I was at that point only dating Orthodox men, but I wasn't 100% committed to some of the issues that were more recent for me from NCSY one of the things I loved doing when I was younger was dancing. So I was a very good dancer. I thought that at some point in my life, I might actually become a competition disco dancer. I had done ballet for like 16 years. And I had actually been on stage with American Ballet Theater three times when I was in Chicago, not because I was a good dancer, just because I was an extra. And It was, wow, it was like I said, God, if you take me now, I can die. So there were like lots of things that had nothing to do with being a religious Jew that I sort of had a compartmentalized life. I loved learning Torah, I loved keeping Shabbos, I loved some of the rituals, but I also had my own life. And I didn't know that being an observant Jew was supposed to mean that it's all integrated. And I didn't even learn that until I was 25. So for me to go mix dancing and do competition dancing and, you know, do this other stuff, that wasn't a problem for me. And, you know, occasionally to wear pants, my blue jeans. I I was a very good ice skater when I had to give up dancing because of injuries. Um, I was a very good dancer and I would wear this skating outfit and I just, I love being on the ice looking like a professional. So, not that I was, but I like looking that way. So there are a lot of, I, I call them lacunae in my acceptance of various levels of observance. And it took me many years before I finally came down and said, okay, that's it. I mean, another thing I was doing is I was singing in a mixed choral group. And to me, that was fine. But in some circles, you know, if I would tell them that that's what I was doing, it would be the kiss of death. So eventually, a lot of those things dropped out of my repertoire. And I kind of towed the party line about being an observant Jew in in all areas of my life.
0: Yeah, I can relate to that, because as somebody who was raised completely secular, the things you were just describing sound like perfectly normal to me. I never thought twice about the fact that boys and girls were together or that we would be at events and mixing and all these things seemed very normal to me. So even as I was starting to become religious, I wouldn't even notice if those things were going on because they still felt normal to me. And it wasn't really until I got to a community and started to see how everybody was living that. I saw like in real-life practice how some of these things could be issues or not. So I completely understand where you're coming from on this.
1: Right, And and I'll say this, Jeff, that even after I became fully observant, I, I think because I'm a bala teshuvah and I'm a curious person and I've been exposed to a lot of things in the world, I was doing a lot of things that are commonplace now, but people in those days didn't do it. I, I became a licensed scuba diver. I mean, I, I was traveling by myself to to 12 countries in Europe one summer. And and there are just so many things that today people would say, you did what in those days? Now, today, everybody's doing it. There's kosher tours everywhere, but I did it before people were doing that kind of stuff. And to me, as you say, that was what a normal person did. So I didn't see any contradictions here.
0: You know, one of the things I mentioned in the intro was all these books that you've written. And I want to transition a little bit because you, you referenced one already, the Valshuva Survival Guidebook. I know it's not the first one you did, but I wanna start there because you you brought it up before. So give me a sense from that book, one or two of what you see as the biggest challenges that somebody faces as they make this personal decision to become more observant.
1: So I think the easy part is what you are gonna do on your own. The hard part is dealing with the human relationships and all the changes in your relationships. Uh, When you can't go with your friends anymore on Friday nights, when you're not going to the bars and the discos, when your parents want to take you out to the non-kosher restaurants. And, you know, if you're not living in New York City, you may not have a lot of choices of some really good places that are substitutes. When all the family outings, weddings, everything are on Shabbos. You know, what do you do with a lot of these issues? And I've had so many friends who have suffered terribly because, let's say, they didn't go to the intermarriage of their brother. And um, you know, there's a whole host of interpersonal issues that I deal with in the book and, and try to give people guidelines. And one of the guidelines is a lot of times somebody will say to you like, uh, do you have to wear that outfit everywhere? You know, Do you have mm-hmm. to wear that kippah everywhere? And people who are baltashua don't know not to answer that question because that's not really what the person's asking. What they're really saying is you became so different how can we still have a place of connecting? How can we still have something in common? How can you still love me when I'm so different from you? And so the book is in a large part helping people to see how do you keep healthy connections with people? How do you know what to say and not to say with people? You know, when you're a flaming ball to Shuva, you want to share everything with everybody. And you just have to learn sometimes to put on those brakes and to keep it to yourself and, and to understand when it's threatening to people that, you know, you have to find those areas. I, I've had many patients over the years for Bali Jeshuvah. And some of my patients, I say, go shopping with your mother, you know, because that's not a message that they're getting from from their mentors. They have to find some means of connection that still feels comfortable for both sides. So that's one of the big areas that I tackle in the book. To a lesser extent, there are smaller things like, you know, how do I find a community? How do I find a synagogue? And how do you find the community? And how do you find the flavor that your neshama, your soul needs? So those are two important areas of the book.
0: Yeah, I think one of the challenges that I noticed, as you just said, it wasn't so much what I was doing personally, but the things with my family. And the biggest obstacle was you're raised to like, look for the win-win, like the negotiation meeting in the middle. And there were so many things where I said, I I can't meet in the middle. It's not like we can go to a non-kosher place and I'll just eat this. And so everyone's giving a little bit and we'll get to like a good place. And so we had to really transition to this idea of not having so many of our events and the time we spent together focused on food, which I never realized how much food was the anchor of the things that you do with your extended family. And we just said there's other things that we can do. And Thanksgiving actually became the one food thing that worked out perfectly because it's, it's on a Thursday. You don't have the Shabbos issue. We can host it. But a lot of the other food things were big challenges.
1: So, Jeff, you discovered by trial and error some of the things that I hope to give people in the book to mitigate some of the pain that people often go through in this process of, as you call it, transitioning.
0: Right. And I was thinking about another one of your books, The Art of Jewish Prayer, was another area that when you go from not praying at all, and then you hear you're going to be doing this three times a day, every day, a lot of the words are repetitive. You know, it's not changing all that much from day to day. Obviously, holidays are different. And how to find meaning in something you're doing that much. I, when I first went into it, I was like, why don't they just do it once a day? Like, That's probably enough like, to get the gist of what I'm trying to do. And I didn't have appreciation for the full rhythm of the Jewish experience. But what, what are some tips you go into there?
1: So I must confess that I was like somebody who only davened by rote. Whatever words I was saying, I would be thinking of a recipe when I'm saying, you know, the Shemona Estre, or I'd be thinking of um, do I want to play baseball this afternoon, or do I want to go and do gymnastics <laughs> this afternoon when I'm saying Shema?" I, my mind was always, always somewhere else, because the prayers just didn't speak to me in any way. And when I heard Rabbi cursor of Blessed Memory giving his class in Shmona Esrei, he talked about Judaism is about having a relationship with God. And nearly fell off my chair. What does God have to do with Judaism? I mean, I had gone through so many years really where we had rituals and we had, you know, learning, but God, that he He has a relationship with us. So I think that trying to transform prayer into a relationship with God using the same tools that we use in relationships with people was life-changing. And if you notice, a lot of the books that I've written, I think my fifth book on prayer is coming out, Please God, this year. I have uh, one on Shimona Esri, one on Shema, and my third book on uh, Tehillim is coming out that I co-wrote with Rifki Siegel this year. Um, perhaps one of the reasons I've written so many books on prayer is because it's so hard for me. My mm-hmm. mind just wants to go somewhere else because the words don't speak to me. And what I found is that for prayer to be meaningful for me, I have to stop. I have to create an oasis of quiet and and consciousness for me to think about the words. What is going on in my life today that I want to talk to God about? What do I need from God today? So I've spent many, many hours reading about prayer, learning about prayer, thinking about prayer, and literally trying to make prayer speak to me and have my words speak to God.
0: I know you wrote a book called To Be a Jewish Woman. And the question I want to ask you is, as I became observant, one of my mother's biggest issues was around gender equality. And she used to say, you know, we raised you the times we went to shul, the men and women sat together, the families were together. And what I see you doing in Orthodox shul, it looks like the focus is like way too much on the men and the women are off to the side. And this just doesn't feel like where our country is headed in terms of women's rights and, and gender equality. So do you get into that issue? Do you have a kind of an opinion on that piece about what it means to be a Jewish woman and, and still have that equality with men?
1: So I'm a big believer that we're not supposed to be men. And as I was growing up in the end of high school and college, feminism was at its peak and they were trying to make women into men. And it was a dismal failure. And what I began to learn and to appreciate is that women have something unique to contribute and a unique way that we nourish our souls, in a unique way that we speak to each other, and a unique way to have relationships. And I felt that it was selling us very short to try to make us into men. And so as I was getting older and older, there was a time when I was in college when a few times I was uh, leading a minion, you know, with men and women in it. And I realized that was just about my ego. It wasn't, I, I, I wasn't feeling closer to God because I was doing that. I was just feeling like I want to be just like a man. So let me do what men do. And I found that there were so many better ways for me to truly and authentically connect to God. And what I tell people is, you know, men and women have equal access to God. God loves us both. But the way he tailor-made a system for men to get close to him and tailor-made a system for women to get close to him is different. And if it happens that you have a rare woman here or there that, you know, gets closer to God using a traditionally male way, you know, so there are people like that. And and I respect people like that. But to try to make all of us women wholesale just into men and do the things that men are doing, I, I don't see the value in that. And I must say that, you know, over my many years of being a therapist, I find that, you know, when I can understand what's unique about women and help them to nourish that, that that gives them much more of a foothold in authentic Judaism than trying to put them into a box that doesn't fit them, but fits somebody else.
0: And so now going back to your story, there's a few things that came up as we've been chatting, one of which was you were dating Orthodox men. Then I also know you're talking to me from... Israel. So bring those things together, because we got into your books and your speaking gigs. But Let's get back to your story of how that unfolded.
1: So interestingly enough, I think that the feminist movement soured a lot of women on having kids and told us we didn't need to get married, we didn't need to have kids, they were just going to get in our way. And definitely when I was in college, what was my focus front and center was You know, getting into a career track and becoming, I don't know what, you know, at the beginning, but eventually a psychologist. And um, when I was in graduate school, ironically enough, I had a teacher who was very much like me in the sense that she didn't want to have kids particularly. And then she started studying infancy and how amazing babies are and what they can do. And through that class, I actually started to desire to have kids so it was through through psychology that that became something that I wanted to do. And, you know, the idea of being married was one thing. The idea of having kids was something else. I mean, I think from high school, you know, when all my friends were dating and I was dating to a lesser extent than they were, that, um, you know, every woman had a relationship if she could. And that was Bliss. So, you know, even if we were on a career track, all of us wanted to get married. So that was never something I had to think much about. That was just kind of the way all of us kind of either were raised or felt. When it came to actually having my own kids, that was a different story because I wasn't able to have kids for a very, very long time. And um, I found that, you know, when I finally did have kids, I stopped all of my working for the time that they were young. Uh, I wasn't writing. I wasn't I was doing therapy maybe three, four hours a week.
0: But your husband came from an observant background. It was always like a given that that's how you wanted to raise your own kids.
1: You know, we didn't talk about how we were going to raise our own kids, but he also, he was an FFB, which was uh, very strange for me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, so, you know, we, we just kind of both decided at a certain point in time that we both wanted to travel and we were doing a lot of things that Orthodox Jews generally didn't do, whether it was scuba diving. He was a very good skier just the kind of traveling that we were doing. We, we took our kids to French Polynesia when they were two and four years old. Um, <laughs> I taught my daughter, my older daughter to read when she was two, because I know that that was something that was a possibility and she loved it. My other daughter didn't want to learn how to read. She didn't want to do the things that her older sister were doing. Okay, fine. But I just, I think both of us found that the world was such an incredible place. We just wanted to grab it and you know, and and as one of the poets said, suck the marrow out of life and be able to enjoy what God put here for us to see and to do.
0: So there's one last side of you we didn't discuss, but the way you said you love travel, does that have something to do with how you became a tour guide?
1: I don't have a, an easy answer to that. I decided when I came to Israel, we made Aliyah at the height of the Intifada 20 years ago. And it was so dangerous to even go outside in some places. We were always afraid when the next bomb was going to be set off, when the next bus was going to be you know, destroyed, that I wanted to be able to see the country and understand the country in a way that I would appreciate it. Because when I lived in Tel Aviv, I never got a chance to see the country. Every trip that the university did was on Shabbos or Yontif, so I never went anywhere the whole year that I was here. So the main reason for me to become a tour guide was really because I wanted to learn about Israel I wanted to learn what was so special about it I wanted to learn what different parts of the country were and what they meant Eventually when I when I got my license 2 years later it was something that I felt very excited to do to I think it was very related to my teaching and my doing Jewish outreach that I felt this was one more avenue by which I could teach Jews to be excited about Israel, not because of the Zionism or the 20th century, but because of our 3,300 year history here. Because if you wanna even go back to the time of Abraham, our 4,000 year history here, you know, from a religious point of view, why is this all meaningful to us? And to educate people who would not have a religious side to their trip to Israel, to be able to expose them to that and excite them about why the land of Israel is a special place to Jews from the Torah point of view, from the religious perspective.
0: Is, are your tours different when you find out who you're having and what their level of observance is? I would think the way you might talk to them, where you might go, what they might be interested in would vary a lot by where they are on the spectrum of Judaism.
1: A hundred percent. If I have people who are totally secular, um, or I, I'd say for anybody who I tour guide, the first thing I ask is, do you have places in mind that you want to visit What kinds of places do you enjoy? Do you enjoy history? Do you enjoy nature? Do you like to hike? Do you like to see science? Do you want to see the startup nation? Do you want to go to the Kotel? Depending upon what people tell me, I mean for some groups like the beginning every day we'll do like three hours of something that is what I'll call meaningful and the afternoon we'll go to a chocolate factory or we'll go to some place that's just plain fun. Some people will you know, really want to see some things with sources, and some people don't want to see the sources. They just want to have a general idea of why this is significant to the Jewish people. So absolutely, I mean, whoever I take around, I want to know who they are, where they're coming from, and uh, how I can make it a wonderful trip for them.
0: What does the future hold for you? What do you have your eye on to do over the next you know, three to five years?
1: At this point, and, and really for a long time, I just say, God please just tell me for today what my marching orders are. I I don't have a lot of long-term plans. I never know what to expect next. So, you know, I just say to God, look, you know what you're going to send me. I'm just waiting. Send me my marching orders. And when it happens, I'll let you know that the only thing that I do plan for the next uh, foreseeable future is I'm working on the fourth book out of the five volume set of living to Hillam. And, um, beyond that, can't tell you. Let's let's be excited and find out when the future opens up to me and I can tell you then.
0: Fair enough. And you inadvertently took us into the lightning round because my first question was going to be, what's the next book that we can expect from you?
1: So it'll be Emir Tz Living to Tehillim, Volume 2, which is supposed to be out before Hanukkah. That's the next answer.
0: <laughs> and so as someone who writes so often, is there an author that you admire or a particular book that you've read that really speaks to you?
1: Honestly, Jeff, I hardly ever read
0: <laughs> You're too busy writing.
1: Most of the time, when I read, it's it would be on my transatlantic flights. When you know I'm doing speaking tours and stuff during the week, if I read, it's usually things on the internet. It's articles. It's not books. On Shabbos, sometimes I do read. I can tell you from many, many years ago, one of my favorite authors was Aryeh Kaplan. I think Mm -hmm. Arya Kaplan was so brilliant and he took such deep ideas and he distilled them to their basic concepts and made it not only practical, but understandable for everybody. So he was a very special author for me. And that was someone that I just, if if I could write the way he did, I mean, I would be thrilled.
0: And you also mentioned traveling for your speaking gig. So what's an interesting place or two that you've gone to that really sticks out to you as a beautiful memory?
1: I can give you a whole list, which I won't, but I think that South Africa was one of the most amazing places I've done speaking tours. Uh, I did four trips to South Africa. One trip, I did four different uh, cities speaking there and, and different reasons that I went on the different speaking tours. But when I speak, I love to combine it with other kinds of pleasures. And in South Africa, it's such a gorgeous country. I went on safaris every single time and, you know, saw the nature and the animals and the it just, it was incredible. There was one time I went to South Africa and we I was with a group of young women and I was um, you know talking to them and teaching them Torah and whatever, and we were in a place that was in the middle of nowhere. And um, it sounded like it was raining at night. And I was in a, like a cabin by myself and I went outside, it wasn't raining. It turned out that there were baboons that were walking across my roof at night. <laughs> it, was, it was just so exciting. And and the people in South Africa, the Jewish community in South Africa is just an, an entity to itself. I never met such gracious hosting people in my life. Um, they, they just couldn't do enough for me. They were so kind and they were so thirsting for Torah. I mean, people would just come and, and everything I wanted to speak about, they were just excited to hear. Uh, it was It was just every time I went was a wonderful experience there.
0: Very nice. Okay, last question for you. Uh, Like you, I do a lot of public speaking, and sometimes the presentations run together. But every once in a while, someone in the audience asks me like a really unique question that is like truly memorable. So can you think of a time that someone after or even during a presentation had something like really unique that jumped out to you, they asked?
1: I can't think of that. But I'll tell you something that to this day is just incredible to me. So I was speaking in a certain place where the Jews are so assimilated, they couldn't have my talk in a place that was like associated with a Jewish organization. So it was in a little library. And at the end of my talk, I was speaking about the Shema. A lady came up to me and she said, I can never become an Orthodox Jew because the time I feel closest to God is when I get an Aliyah in my temple. And I don't remember saying this to her, but I found out later, I said to her, if you feel so close to God doing something he never commanded you to do, imagine how close you can feel to God when you do what he's asked you to do. And she walked away with two of her friends. And that was the end of it. And it was a place where I didn't know if anybody had been reached by anything I said that night. Mm -hmm. Seven years later, I was tour guiding in the old city in Jerusalem. And my client gave me a letter. From this woman in a city, I won't mention where it was, and I, I didn't remember her name. I didn't know anybody there by that name. After I finished tour guiding the day, I opened a letter, and it was this woman. She wrote me a letter. She said, I had told my husband that night that I was going out for some entertainment. I came home after you spoke to me, and I said to my husband, I'm becoming an Orthodox Jew. Do you want to join me or you don't want to join me? He said, okay, I'll join you. <laughs> so they moved to a city that had a really nice Jewish community, and they raised their kids, they put their kids in Jewish schools. And she said, I just wanted you to know seven years later how much you changed my life. So, I mean, that, that to me is the best, that I can speak and change people's lives, whether it's being a psychologist, being a tour guide, being an author, going around the world telling people different ideas about Judaism. If I can bring people closer to their Jewish neshama, I'm thrilled.
0: Lisa, that is a beautiful and inspirational story to end on. So you are out of the lightning round, and I want to thank you so much for joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Jeff.
0: Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit taklismedia.com. That's T A C hlis Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a story we should know about by emailing shabbos at I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.